0: Second Corinthians chapter 8, we'll read verses 1 through 9 for our scripture reading this morning. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty, abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints." And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in all faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that he was willing to become poor. That is, he was willing to give of himself, to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven. So that we might be enriched with the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of heaven. and And the bright future you have planned for us in eternity. And Father, we're thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, today we would want to study him, to worship him, to present him even to one another as we open your word, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ in in the depths of his love and the beauty of his grace and in his faithfulness to us, Father. We are thankful, Father, not only for our eternal standing, our salvation in Christ that you offer to us freely, but Father, we're thankful as well that you are a faithful God. That you've cared for us this week and watched over us, provided for us, and Father, there are many amongst us, and you, in fact, all each of us, Father, have needs each and every day. And thank you, Father, that you are there to to meet those needs, to hold our hands along the path of life, to direct our steps, to keep us from evil, and to watch over us. Father, thank you that you have been faithful to us, and Father, we pray for those who do have special needs, Father, that they would they would turn to you, look to you, and that you would uphold and strengthen them, even today as well. And Father, for those around our world, Father, that are um, worshiping you this morning. We pray that you would watch over them, especially those who, who, who worship you and attend church, seek to be a witness in those areas of perse- where they are persecuted, where they are at risk, Father. We pray that you would protect them, watch over them, Father, and, and may you use their testimony and their word to forward the gospel. And Father, we pray as well for our missionaries. Thank you for each one, Father. And I just pray that you would protect them in an increasing hostile world, that you would further their work, that once again, the good news of Jesus Christ might get out to those who are so needy to hear of him. And Father, we pray today as we gather together that you would direct our hearts and our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would direct us by your spirit and your word, that we might understand the things you would teach us this morning, that the Lord Jesus might be glorified amongst us this morning, and not only here, but as we go our separate ways, that we would take heed, to your word, for truly these are the words of life, the eternal words of life, a life from a God who never changes, who's always true, who's always faithful, whose word stands forever. Thank you that we can base our lives on. Thus saith the Lord. So give us understanding in these things. Now we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. We go back to Philippians chapter four. Return to our place of study as we study through the Bible verse by verse, and we're left off last time here. In the middle of this chapter, last couple of weeks we've looked at the idea of contentment and then last week looking at Paul's ability to enjoy a life of rest and contentment was because of Christ who strengthens him and we saw that Christ strengthens us. He promises to provide that strength and ability in all that we do in our lives as he seeks to help us through life because we remember that our God is a not necessarily a God who is, who is Against us, as the world sometimes likes to depict him, a God who is out to get people, to judge people, to get after people. Instead, he is a God of love, is he not? Well, he is a God of justice. We recognize his justice was satisfied upon Jesus Christ at the cross, but God also is a God who loves us, who wants to help us in life, navigate us in life. He is a faithful father who is for us and present with us, and he strengthens us. Yet this, this morning, as we continue on, we return to the thought of he be, and he began this section in verse 10 in regards to their giving. And I want to read verse 14 here. Let's read a few verses here to catch the context here, beginning in verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus a things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So in verse 14 he says, Nevertheless, he returns to the thought he began in verse 10. In regards to the gift that they had given him while he was in Roman prison, they had sent him a gift to support him and encourage him and strengthen him, and it returns to that that theme here in verse 14. Well, in between we saw the idea of contentment and the strengthening of Paul. Here he we find in verse 10 he thanked them in in for their gift, rejoicing in their care for him. And notice that in this context that and though the gift may have refreshed him and strengthened him, it really it, it really spiritually encouraged him, and that's really the theme here, isn't it? He 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 mentions they did care about him. They had an opportunity, but they had an opportunity here to express their love for him, and Paul was encouraged in in their love. And then in verse 14, he returns to the thought where he commends them for this for this loving act. He said, "You did well here to give." He said it was a good thing. As returns to this thought, and that's and that's not and it wasn't because of Paul's desire to have something it was because of their willingness wasn't it their engagement in the work of God their willingness to give for the work of the gospel and the apostle Paul and so we have in this passage really in the end of this book is an example of Christian giving it's a topic that pastors approach tentatively because it, we because so often the world sees churches or pastors having their hands out and always asking for money yet that's not the theme of this passage well, the theme of this passage really is, is a fellowship in the gospel. And that's why he says here in verse, in verse 14, he says, You have done well that you shared in my distress. The word share is der- derived from the word that is also translated fellowship. And so he has this idea of a connection to share together. In fact, Vines is, defines this word as to share together with. Meaning this represents more than simply the physical act of giving doesn't it? It represents a connection, a fellowship, an engagement with the ministry of Paul here for the Philippian church, a partnership in the work of the gospel, which he mentions in verse 15, in the beginning of the gospel, that is the work or efforts of the gospel. And this connection, this fellowship is, is such as where both are one in the work. Well, one gives, the other may be going out, but they are together sharing in the work of the gospel, in this case, sharing in the distress of the Apostle Paul in that work. He had, put in, he had been put in prison for his work in the gospel, for his witness in the gospel. And so they shared in his distress, recognizing that connection went beyond the giving of money, but with the compassion for his condition, for their dear brother in Christ, who was, who was presently in prison. And so he commends them for this. Now, it seems in the scriptures that this church may have must have been a giving church and had the right motives and perspective in it because they're used as an example. Here we have kind of a little lengthy passage in this in this chapter in regards to their giving to Paul in this specific instance. But if you go back to 2 Corinthians 8, we find that they're used as an example. They're used as an example to the church at Corinth. Actually, the book, 2 Corinthians, is written to the church at Corinth. But God records it on the pages of scripture for a forever remembrance and recognition of the example that the macedonian church has set because the, the church of philippi was probably the the, the biggest church the uh, in in the region of macedonia and he's referring to the philippian church so the, when you read the word macedonians in here the churches of macedonia Philippi, the church of philippi was one of those and in verse four in this in our scripture reading he said he mentions that he he is impl- they were implored him implored us with much agency urgency excuse me that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints and so here we have that same idea it's the fellowship of ministering it's in this case the the gift was in reference to the poor saints in jerusalem and we know paul and his team had been collecting a uh, an offering for those saints back in the home church the mother church the church in jerusalem where believers were being heavily persecuted which means that in some cases they may have lost Incomes and jobs, opportunities to sell and whatever the case may be. They've been ostracized. They were needy. And so these believers who had benefited, because remember the witness of the gospel started in Jerusalem and then to the Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. It's through the Jews the gospel has come to us that they were giving back to these, these poor saints in Jerusalem. But this offering was to be an expression of their fellowship, their connection with them indicating that giving is not to be motivated by obligation, which is so often uh, the way we approach it, through duty. But instead, it's out of a love for people and the passion for the work of God in ministering to people. A love of the gospel and the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the gospel is all about his love for us. And Wednesday night, we talked about the heart of the gospel message a little bit. In 1 Peter 1:18 and 19, It says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And the heart of the message is the precious blood of Christ. It's precious because of who Jesus was. It's precious because of what he accomplished. It's precious because it rescues people from eternal hell and from this present evil world. And what you really see in the context of giving in both these passages is the underlying message of the fellowship of the gospel, the work of the gospel. Now, what is the work of the gospel? Well, well, we know, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel is Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And it is a message of salvation. It is a message that rescues people. Because, and it's because of man's greatest need that's really what's at the core of the gospel is people God so loved people the world God so loved the world John 3:16 that he gave his only begotten son and we sometimes forget that the the greatest tragedy in, in in life is to see people slip off into from life into a Christless eternity you know sometimes we think there's great tragedy and there's great tragedy around all around us whether it is whether it is the murdering of the unborn, whether it is the abuse of people upon one another, whether it is a persecuted church and Christians, and, 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 and the, the violence you see may, see may even see towards youth and infants and so on. All tragedies, all terrible, awful things that, that man brings on one another. But is that really the greatest tragedy facing mankind? Is that the greatest threat facing people? And while it's terrible and it's awful, The greatest threat is the lake of fire, being eternally separated from their creator, from their God. Turn with me for a moment over to Romans chapter 3. Let's just just flip over and remind us, because in Romans chapter 3, we see a summation of man's condition of his greatest need. Because in the first three chapters of Romans, God discusses three types of people, moral people, immoral people than a religious people. And this is the conclusion he comes to in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Now he's referring to, in this context, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are we religious Jews better than the ungodly Gentiles? That's how they viewed them, at least from their perspective. And he says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, your Bible may say, that they are all under sin. That's man's greatest problem. We are all under sin. And that refers to both sin's condemnation, a soul that sins it shall die, and it refers to sin's power and control over our lives, the destruction of of sin in our lives. And we are all under it. We're all sinners before God. And And that's the conclusion. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become a profitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That's kind of all conclusive, isn't it? None. That's absolute none. There's none righteous before God. No one is ever going to stand before God in his own righteousness and say, I deserve to go to heaven. No, because we are. God sees us as lost sinners under the curse of In condemnation of sin, it goes on to describe mankind in that condition. Verse thirteen: Their throat is an open tomb; with their tongues they have practiced deceit. Their poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood; destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It sounds like the front page of the paper if you happen to read a newspaper any anymore doesn't it? That's the expression. You want to know what's wrong with the world? This is it. It tells us here. It's that we have gone astray from our God. We have left our God and because of sin we are separated from Him. We are free from righteousness and we don't understand. No matter how intelligent people may be, how how high they rise in academia, we do not understand life. We do not understand death. We do not understand eternity. We We do not understand our Creator apart from the revelation He has given to us. Going on in verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says those who are under the law. Now what does that mean? That means the law here is a reference to the Ten Commandments. And it speaks to those who use the Ten Commandments as a means of obtaining righteousness, a means of getting right with God. Because you you ask the average person these days, how do you get right with God? How do you go to heaven? And in many cases, the answer you're going to get, well, keep the Ten Commandments. Now, you can ask them what they are and how they might not be able to name more than one or two or three. It's hard to keep, what you don't know. But that's the mentality. But notice that it says here, what law is really speaking to those who want to stack themselves up against the Ten Commandments, notice it says that every mouth might be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He says, in reality... The law shuts our mouth. It eliminates boasting as mentioned later in this chapter that we have nothing to boast in before God. We realize we're guilty. And what the Bible is saying here is that the law is like that stop sign. You know, if you grew up in rural areas, oftentimes you, you have in your neighborhoods uncontrolled intersections, don't you? And you can just roll them. You know, there's no stop and You can just roll through them. And all of a sudden, some bureaucrat gets the idea that the intersection needs a stop sign. Well, you know, us hard-headed, stubborn rednecks, you know, we don't care. We've been driving through this intersection for 40 years. I'm going to continue to roll through this intersection. I don't care what they say. But you know what? If there's a cop sitting there watching and they pulls you over, he has a right to give you a ticket because now there's a stop sign there that declares you guilty, whether you agree with it or like it or not. He said, well, I did this for years. And I wasn't guilty. Well, no, you are, because there's a stop sign. And that's what the law does. When we come across the laws of God, whether it is the Ten Commandments or other righteous concepts in the Word of God, it declares us guilty. We find out we can't keep them. And we become guilty before God. Now, you might still blow to that stop sign and think you're absolutely right. But as far as the law is concerned, they have a right to pronounce you guilty. I even know one, one person... I'll say lady, because you probably expect it to be a guy, who did the headlights thing at night. When that stop sign went up, they thought, they're not going to stop at the stop sign. They're just going to shut the headlights off to see if anybody's coming the any other way. And the mother freaked her husband out the first time she did that. But that's how people view the law of God. They, they, they want to keep it if it's convenient, and they don't recognize that in reality, it's declaring them Guilty. Therefore, verse 20, it says, By the deeds of the law, by the works of the law, by keeping the Ten Commandments, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Just the opposite of what religion teaches. Religion wants to teach us that it's by law-keeping that we obtain righteousness. It's by law-keeping that we make ourselves good enough to go to heaven. When here it says, therefore, the conclusion is by by law-keeping, by doing good works, no one will be justified. That's not God's program. He said, instead, instead, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That law makes us realize how sinful we are. That's bad news, isn't it? That conclusion of mankind is not a pretty picture. But it is how mankind stands before God. Even if we see each other in a relative kind of righteousness. You know, there's good people and bad people in our neighborhoods, in our schools, our place of work or wherever. It doesn't matter how good we are. God says we stand before God as unrighteous because we are under sin. But then verse 21 begins the good news portion of this passage. And it starts with my favorite word in the scriptures, the word but. Well, not my favorite word, but one of my favorite words, but. Because often when you see uh, the word but in the scriptures, it means God is stepping in. God is interjecting himself into man's need, into man's condition. But now, he says now. Here's the better way. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now he said it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, that's that's a reference to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They they wrote about this. In verse 22, even the righteousness of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. He says here's a different kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness of God. It's a righteousness that God provides. It's not a righteousness you earn by your good works because God, as far as God's concerned, we are unrighteous. No matter how good we may appear to one another, God says we have a standing before him as being lost because of sin, under sin and unrighteousness. Instead, if you're going to attain righteousness, it's going to have to be some other way than through law-keeping, through the Ten Commandments. And in the way we attain that is... By virtue of a gift, even the righteousness of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. In other words, God gives righteousness to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And one aspect of our salvation when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, there's kind of a few different aspects of it. One is the forgiveness of sins. All this unrighteousness we've been reading about listed here, all those broken laws that that declare us guilty, need forgiveness before God. And according to Ephesians 1, we find forgiveness in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In him is the forgiveness of sins. We're forgiven. The second thing we need is cleansing. We sing about being cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. We're cleansed from the filth and defilement of sin when we trust Christ as our Savior. And thirdly, we are given a righteousness. We finally attain a righteous state. That doesn't mean I'm acting righteously as a Christian. But before God, he declares me righteous he ge- because he gives it freely th- for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's unto all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, and here's that concluding statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we all need it. Man's greatest need and the greatest potential tragedy he faces is the lake of fire, eternal separation from God because of sin. <laughs> But God steps in. Verse 24 goes on and says, Being justified, that means to be declared right or righteous. To be declared right, to be justified. We're justified freely. That means we don't earn it. It's by His grace. That means it's given to the undeserved. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's through the f- price He paid on the cross. He paid for sins on the cross, past, present, and future, lock, stock, and barrel. Verse 25, whom God, that is Jesus, Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is a satisfactory payment, how? By his blood. He paid for our sins by his blood. That through faith, he might demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That means pre-cross, God passed over those sins. That's what atonement is all about. All those Old Testament sacrifices that, that covered sins. So God passed over those sins in his forbearance but now he demonstrates verse 26 at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus that means he's just his justice was satisfied how was it satisfied how did what on what basis he could he justify you and I on what basis could he declare us right the price was paid Jesus paid for the paid the price on the cross and I've said this before, but it's kind of like going down to the bank to pay off your mortgage and find out that, well, someone paid your mortgage off for you. You don't owe anything. And you think, no, oh, no, no, that can't be, that can't be. You go home, you, try, you talk about it with your wife, you figure it out, you go back to the bank and say, no, I'm going to pay. you know, here's my $20,000, I'm going to pay off the rest of my mortgage. And he just says, no, you there's no debt to pay, it's been paid. It's, it's paid in full. We sent you the letter, paid in full. Well, I didn't pay it, no, someone paid it on your behalf. And that's Salvation. No matter how much we think we could work our way to heaven, it's already the price has already been paid, paid in full. That's what Jesus meant when he said it is finished. One of the last things he stated on the cross, and so God can be just, his because his justice was satisfied. The price was paid on the cross for your sins and mine, and because he was also the justifier. Isn't that wonderful? That's grace. He's just and satisfied that part of his character that demands justice, that a penalty be paid. But he's also in grace and in his love, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because he is the one who provided for our justification. He is the one who provided for our salvation. He is the one who paid the price. And verse 27 then comes to that conclusion Where it is boasting then. Now, if you haven't made the connection, that goes all the way back to verse 19 where it says every mouth might be stopped because... In addressing people who think they can work their way to heaven, they need to realize that they can't work their way to heaven. Their mouths need to be stopped. They're guilty. And that's what verse 27 says. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? What what, what stops me from boasting? The law of works? No. Obviously, if you're working your way to heaven, you can stick your spiritual thumbs in your spiritual suspenders and boast in your righteousness. He says, no, it's a law of faith that eliminates boasting. Because faith is a response to the work of God. You see, God is at work to draw people to Jesus Christ. It is the Father who draws people. It is the love of Jesus that, that brings people to the, to the cross. And we are responsible to respond by faith. And it's that law of faith that eliminates any boasting in and of ourselves. Because there is no merit or value in faith. It eliminates boasting. And therefore, it's verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's the message of the gospel. It's the most important message people need to hear. It is this message that was the focus of the Apostle Paul and, and the focus of the, of the supporting church in Philippi. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because this is what they were fellowshipping in. This is what they shared in. This is more than just, you know, we like Paul. That, wasn't what, that isn't what missionary support is about. I really like this person. You know, we really get along well. They're very likable, you know, and, and there's and a lot of, and there's a lot of people out there engaged in ministry who have uh, magnetic personalities and and, and and they're easy to partner with, but it's not about personality at all, is it? It's about the work of the gospel. It's about the greatest message to meet minds, the greatest need that needs to get out there, and the Philippian church, the churches of Macedonia were concerned about that. That they partnered in that. And I think in this chapter 8, we find a few, before we get back to Philippians chapter 4, we find a few dynamics, a few t- principles we can learn from by observation in this chapter. In verse 1, it says, in regards to their their, their giving, is more of a brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, we may know to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. First of all, Giving was enabled by grace. It was, it was administered in grace. It was motivated by grace. Grace representing the giving of God and providing all that we need for life freely, to freely serve him, but also includes the ability to give, the willingness to give, the grace to give. It represents the attitude of grace that motivated these brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, in the flesh we tend to criticize and scrutinize and use people but grace the grace and love of the lord jesus christ in the hearts of his people see people don't see people either as deserving or undeserving but instead as needing the love of the savior and that was their grace it was a grace that motivated them to be compassionate for the dear brothers and sisters back in jerusalem And in verse 2, it says that in great trial of fiction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. They gave liberally in spite of their deep poverty. Interesting, isn't it? Here's a church that was poor. It says they had deep poverty. They didn't have much to, to, to go on, and yet out of that abounded liberality and giving. Notice there's nothing here about 10%. Instead, what we see is a liberal giving abounding from grace. This is grace giving as defined in the New Testament. And it's because grace always outdoes the law, obligation, or duty. You know, the 10% came from the tithe that was administered to the, to the Jews in the Old Testament. it was primarily a tax that supported the temple and its priesthood. But somehow we often conveniently forget that the Old Testament saints gave tithes and offerings. Tithe wasn't all they gave. That was simply like a tax to support the priesthood and the temple and its needs to continue to function. On top of that, they gave their offerings. You see, the glorious thing about here the Church of the Macedonia is that their financial condition did not restrict them from giving as God led them to. They gave liberally, and also it says they gave with joy, abundance of their joy. It's because of their joy in Jesus Christ, and that indicates that they had a heart that was right with him. They were rejoicing in their salvation. They, they, they didn't give reluctantly. You didn't have to pry their fingers open to, press, to peel out a, a buck to give. They gave with joy. And they also, verse 3, they gave willingly. I bear, th- I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing. They gave not because they were pressured or emotionally manipulated. Instead, giving here was, was thoughtful and deliver it, being motivated by God himself and by his grace. Verse 4 says they gave. E- also says that they gave eagerly, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Apparently there was some reluctance in Paul to take their offering, maybe because of their deep poverty. He may have been thinking, you know, he says, you know, you sure you want to do this? You know, you could... Can- You know, you can hardly put bread on the table and whatever the case is, you know, you're going through a great trial of affliction. I don't know if there was a drought or whatever the case was, but they, they, you know, they were a needy church. They're the ones that maybe should have been given too. Instead, they were giving liberally and and Paul was maybe reluctant. So they were begging Paul, please, 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 let us give. Let us take, please take this. And where do you find that? People begging to give and the elders encouraging them not to. That's kind of odd, isn't it? But it happens because of the next verse where he says, and not only as we'd hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves. Isn't that glorious? And that explains it. Why they gave abundantly out of their poverty, because, of a, because they gave out a relationship. They gave out, gave out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They gave because they gave themselves first to him. And once again, what we see here is a reminder that God wants our heart more than he needs our money and our service. And see, that's really what this passage is about. And Sometimes when we hear this, we think, oh, the preacher's asking for more money. But the message behind there is the attitude of heart. That's what's really behind this. That's what God wants. You know, God has a cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money, by the way. But he wants to use it, just like he wants to use you. But he wants you first. That's what he wants. And if he, wa- if he gets you first, he knows then that he can direct you to use your life and your resources for his glory. They gave themselves first. And when our hearts are right and we're surrendered to our Savior and God in all aspects of life, then we're in a place where we can respond to, to God's leading in all the resources of our lives, whether time, money, body, whatever it might be. It is then that we recognize that all I have is from him, is to be used for him, because I am here on earth to represent him and to participate in the work of the gospel. And that was what delighted the Apostle Paul. Not only was we hope but they first gave themselves, a delightful thing. And then they gave, nextly, according to the will of God. Isn't that great? Gave according to the will of God. What's great about that is that God can actually motivate his children to give in grace as he leads, as he leads. There's no no percentage or quantity on this. It's as he leads. God doesn't need a legalistic standard or a high-pressure salesman to motivate his people to give. He just needs his love. That's all he needs. He needs his grace. And people that live in light of that grace, live under that grace, to 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 live in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can, then he can motivate them to give as he lays it on their heart. Just We're going to come back here, but look over to chapter 9, where this is summarized in verse 7. He says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one as he purposes in his heart. That's giving. It's giving as God lays upon a person's heart. And then he can give cheerfully and willingly. That's the motivation that God gives in the scripture. And so you can see the, when even though money is being discussed here, giving is being discussed, what he's really after is a right heart, a heart that is right with him first. A heart that is engaged not only with Jesus Christ as Savior, but has a vision for the work of the gospel, for the need of people around us. And then he gives us, if we, if we jump down to verse 9 here, the divine example he lays at our feet, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, you through his poverty might become rich. And so he lays that down before us as the example. Jesus became poor to enrich in us. And that poorness was spiritual poverty, by the way, because he bore our sins on the cross. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that we might become rich, not physically rich, but spiritually rich. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be assured of eternal life. We can know that God is our Lord and Savior and would walk with us each day. The richness spiritually that we experience when we trust Jesus Christ as our example. And it's this example we're to follow. He's for you know. In fact, in verse 8, he says here, He says, I speak not by command, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul's saying, I'm throwing this example in front of you just to challenge you. I'm seeing how how sincere is your love. Is it real? Is your love real? I mean, we can sing about love. We can stand around, you know, in 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 a big ecumenical service and sing about love, but Paul says, this is where it gets real. Are you using your life and your resources for the work of the gospel? He says, I'm testing the sincerity of your love because the reality of it the Christ who lives in you is this kind of Christ in verse 9. The one who leads us is this kind of Christ in verse 9. He is the one who lives sacrificially for the benefit of others. And that's why we're told in Romans chapter 12, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, that's Philippians 2.5. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Romans 12.1 says we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice unto God, which is our reasonable service. Because that is the spirit of Christ in us. Let's go back to Philippians 4. Just for a moment. I want to ignore what this passage has to say about giving. The same people mentioned in 2 Corinthians 8. As we're studying here in the, tr- in the book to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4. We find some other dynamics of giving here by example. In verse 15, after he commends him in verse 14, verse 15, he says, Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I delivered part of it from Macedonia, that no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again for my necessities. Now there's bad news and good news in this. The bad news is no other churches had that kind of vision. That's sad. You know, Paul trotted all over the then unknown world to share the gospel, planted churches everywhere. And he said, but there's one church that, that got it. One church that was engaged with the work of the gospel, and and because that's what Paul talks about here, they this church gave consistently. This wasn't just a one-time emotional appeal by a by a great salesman. They had a proven track record. We see it here in Philippians. It's mentioned in Macedonia. They've gave regularly and consistently <laughs> to the work of the gospel, and they gave repeatedly to Paul even after he departed from them. You know, they might have given it to him while he was there. Okay, let's give him an honorarium. Let's give him you know something. But they gave. Long and beyond, he had left. They were continuing to support his work. They saw the importance of the work of the gospel. And he commends them in regards to that throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 5, he mentions the connection with the Philippian church when he he thanks God in verse 3 for them of chapter 1. And one of the things he thanks them for in verse 5 is for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 12 of the chapter, he mentions, because they would understand that the things happened to him were for the furtherance of the gospel. I mean, his imprisonment was advancing the cause of Christ. In verse 27 of chapter 1, he encourages them to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Jumping over to chapter 4, we looked at in verse 3 a couple ladies that were, were engaged with laboring in the gospel. This church got it. They understood why they were here. They understood that they gathered to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry was the great commission of cooperating with Jesus Christ and laboring for the gospel. And it's something they constantly supported. So the message underlying here this attitude with these principles on giving goes beyond dollar signs, doesn't it? This is about heart. Our our believers in touch and tune with the heart of the Lord Jesus, who so loved the world that he gave himself. It's about a cause, about people whom Jesus created, loved, and died for. And it's something we're to be engaged with until he returns. That's why we're here. In our study on Wednesday night, we saw Peter refer to the lives of the saints he was writing to, into the places they live as their stay here. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, "Your stay here. The way he words it puts it in such a way that they realize it was not their permanent residence. This is not their forever home, you so, might say. They stay, we're here on a mission, aren't we? And that's, that's what this passage is all about. It's about a recognition that this church was engaged with the work of the gospel. That's why in some cases even missionaries, because sometimes churches like to use support of missionaries as their, as their means of, of supporting gospel work. And many missionaries tell you, you know what, if you're not working at home, I don't know if I really want your support on the field. Because we have people across the street and around the corner and down, down the street and at places of work that need to hear about Jesus Christ. People that God brings across our path every day that need, need to hear about the Savior. And it's that mentality that, that God would develop in us um, the striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the message behind this here. And it's something that we're going to be involved with until Jesus is done building his church. Isn't that what he said in Matthew 16? I will build my church. Now, it's not a building. He's building. It's a body of believers. Those who he, who will be with him in glory. And you and I are privileged to be part of that work. Supporting it fa- financially is just one aspect of of the expression of an engagement in the work of the gospel. It's really of giving ourselves to him first, that he might use all our resources to forward the work of the gospel because Jesus Christ is what this world needs. As the world scrambles for solutions to its problems, and all those supposedly wise guys of the world daily put out there on, their, on the news or on the internet or in their books and their writings solutions for the world's problems, we know ultimately begins at least with jesus christ with being right related to our creator that from him we might find wisdom that in him we might find direction in him we might establish right values and perspectives and attitudes and that's why the greatest needs of this world whether it's in time or in each for eternity is is to bring them to know jesus christ it's a privilege to be part of that and may god continue to grow us in that let's pray father thank you for these instructions father and thank you father for that for the challenge that you lay before us in regards to uh, giving of ourselves for the work of the gospel. Thank you for the privilege of being part of that work, that you would use our lives, our testimonies, the witnesses of our mouths, our efforts to bring people the, the knowledge of the simple plan of salvation, that people can know for the forgiveness of sins, be assured of eternal life, to know what God that is for them through simple faith in Jesus Christ who paid it all on the cross. May we be burdened with the burdens of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we love as he loved, and may we be the light we ought to be. Apply these things now to our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.